Chapter Four of Starborn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Starborn by Andre Norton. Chapter Four: Civilization. Raff surveyed the wide sweep of prairie where dawn gave a gray tinge to soften the distance and marked the rounded billows of the ever-rippling grass. He tried to analyze what it was about this world which made it seem so untouched, so fresh and new. There were large sections of his own terra which had been abandoned after the big burn-off and the atomic wars, or later after the counter-revolution which had defeated the empire of Pax during which mankind had slipped far back on the road to civilization. But he had never experienced the same feeling when he had ventured into those wildernesses. Almost he could believe that the records Hobart had showed him were false, that this world had never known intelligent life herding together in cities. He walked slowly down the ramp, drawing deep breaths of the crisp air. The day would grow warmer with the rising sun, but now it was just the sort of morning which led him to be glad he was alive and young. Maybe part of it was because he was free of the ship, and at last not just excess baggage, but a man with a definite job before him. Spacemen tended to be young, but until this moment Raff had never felt the real careless freedom of youth. Now he was moved by a desire to disobey orders to take the flitter up by himself and head off into the blue of the brightening sky for more than just a test flight, not to explore Hobart City, but to cruise over the vast sea of grass and find out its wonders for himself. But the discipline which had shaped him almost since birth sent him now to check the flyer and wait, inwardly impatient, for Hobart, Lablet, and Sariki, the Comtech, to join him. The wait was not a long one since the three others, with equipment hung about, tramped down the ramp as Raff settled himself behind the control board of the flyer. He triggered the shield which snapped over them for a windbreak, and brought the flitter up into the spreading color of the morning. Beside him Hobart pressed the button of the automatic recorder, and in the seat behind Sariki had the headset of the comm clamped over his ears. They were not only making a record of their trip, they were continuing in constant communication with the ship, now already a silver pencil far to the rear. It was some two hours later that they discovered what was perhaps one reason for the isolation of the district in which the RS-10 had set down. Rolling foothills rose beneath them, and miles ahead the white-capped peaks of a mountain range made a broken outline against the turquoise sky. The broken lands would be a formidable barrier for any foot-travellers. There were no easy roads through that series of sharp lifts and narrow valleys, and the one stream they followed for a short space descended from the heights in spectacular falls. Twice they skimmed thick growths of trees, so tightly packed that from the air they resembled a matted carpet of green-blue, and to cut through such a forest would be an impossible task. The four and the flitter seldom spoke. Raff kept his attention on the controls. Sudden currents of air were tricky here, and he had to be constantly alert to hold the small flyer on an even keel. 
his glimpses of what lay below were only snatched ones. At last it was necessary to zoom far above the vegetation of the lower slopes, to reach an altitude safe enough to clear the peaks ahead. Since the air supply within the windshield was constant, they need not fear lack of oxygen. But Raff was privately convinced, as they soared, that the range might well compare in height with those Asian mountains which dominated all the upflung reaches of his native world. When they were over the sharp points of that chain, disaster almost overtook them. A freakish air current caught the flitter as if in a giant hand, and Raff fought for control as they lost altitude past the margin of safety. Had he not allowed for just such a happening, they might have been smashed against one of the rock tips over which they skimmed to a precarious safety. Raff, his mouth dry, his hands sweating on the controls, took them up, higher than was necessary, to coast above the last of that rocky spine, to see below the beginning of the downslopes leading to the plains, the range cut in half. He heard Hobart draw a hissing breath. That was a close call. Lablet's precise, lecturer's voice cut through the drone of the motor. Yeah, Sariki echoed. Looked like we might be sandwich meat there for a while. Kid knows his stuff after all. Raff grinned a little sourly, but he did not answer that. He ought to know his trade. Why else would he be along? They were each specialists in one or two fields, but he had good sense enough to keep his mouth shut. That way the less one had to regret minutes or hours later. The land on the south side of the mountains was different in character to the wild northern plains. Fields! It did not require that identification from Lablet to point out what they had already seen. The section below was artificially divided into long, narrow strips, but the vegetation growing on those strips was no different from the northern grass they had seen above the spacer. Not cultivated now, the scientist amended his first report. It's reverting to grassland. Raff brought the flitter closer to the ground so that when a domed structure arose out of a tangle of overgrown shrubs and trees, they were not more than fifty feet above it. There was no sign of life about the dwelling, if dwelling it was, and the unkempt straggle of growing things suggested it had been left to itself through more than one season. Lablet wanted to set down and explore, but the captain was intent upon reaching the city. A solitary farm was of little value compared with what they might learn from a metropolis, so rather to Raff's relief he was ordered on. He could not have explained why he shrank from such investigation. Where earlier that morning he had wanted to take the flitter and go off by himself, to explore the world which now seemed so bright and new, now he was glad that he was only the pilot of the flyer, and that the others were not only in his company, but ready to make the decisions. He had a queer distaste for the countryside, a disinclination to land near that dome. Beyond the first of the deserted farms they came to the highway, and, since the buckled and half-buried roadway ran south, Hobart suggested that they use it as a visible guide. More isolated dome-houses showed in the course of an hour, and their fields were easy to map from the air. But nowhere did the Terrans see any indication that those fields were in use, nor were there any signs of animal or bird life. 
The weird desolation of the landscape began to work its spell on the men in the flitter. There was something unnatural about the country, and with every mile the flyer clocked off, Raff longed to be heading in the opposite direction. The domes drew closer together, made a cluster at crossroads, gathered into a town in which all the buildings were the same shape and size, like the cells of a wasp nest. Raff wondered if those who had built them had not been humanoid at all, but perhaps insects with a hive mind, and because that thought was unpleasant he resolutely turned his attention to the machine he piloted. They passed over four such towns, all marking intersections of roads running east and west, north and south, with precise exactness. The sun was at noon or a little past that mark when Captain Hobart gave the order to set down so they could break out rations and eat. Raff brought the flitter down on the cracked surface of the road, mistrusting what might lie hidden in the field grass. They got out and walked for a space along pavement which had once been smooth. High-powered traffic! That was Lablet. He had gone down on one knee, and was tracing a finger along the substance. Straight! Sariki squinted against the sun. Nothing stopped them, did it? We want a road here, and we'll get it. That sort of thing. Must have been master engineers. To Raff the straight highway suggested something else. Master engineering, certainly. But a ruthlessness, too as if the builders, who refused to accept any modifications of their original plans from nature, might be as arrogant and self-assured in other ways. He did not admire this relic of civilization. In fact, it added to his vague uneasiness. The land was so still, under the whisper of the wind. He discovered that he was listening. Listening for the buzz of an insect, the squeak of some grass-dweller, anything which would mean that there was life about them. As he chewed on the ration concentrate and drank sparingly from his canteen, Raff continued to listen, without result. Hobart and Lablet were engrossed in speculation about what might lie ahead. Sariki had gone back to the flitter to make his report to the ship. The pilot sat where he was, content to be forgotten, but eager to see an animal peering at him from cover a bird winging through the air. "'If we don't hit it by nightfall, but we can't be that far away, I'll stay out and try tomorrow.' That was Hobart, and since he was captain, what he said was probably what they would do. Raff shied away from the thought of spending the night in this haunted land, though, on the other hand, he would be utterly opposed to lifting the flitter over those mountains again, except in broad daylight. But the problem did not arise, for they found their city in the mid-afternoon, the road bringing them straight to an amazing collection of buildings, which appeared doubly alien to their eyes, since it did not include any of the low domes they had seen heretofore. Here were towers of needle slimness, solid blocks of almost windowless masonry, looking twice as bulky beside those same towers, archways stringing at dizzy heights above the ground from one skyscraper to the next. And here time and nature had been at work. Some of the towers were broken off. A causeway displayed a gap. Once it had been a breathtaking feat of engineering, far more impressive than the highway, now it was a slowly collapsing ruin. 
but before they had time to take it all in, Soriki gave an exclamation. "'Something coming through on the wave-band, sir!' He leaned forward to dig fingers into Hobart's shoulder. "'Message of some kind, I'd swear to it!' Hobart snapped into action. "'Kirby, set down, there!' His choice of a landing-place was the flat top of a nearby building, one which stood a little apart from its neighbors, and, as Raff could see, was not overlooked except by a ruined tower. He circled the flitter. The machine had been specially designed to land and take off in confined spaces, and he knew all there was possible to learn about its handling on his home world. But he had never tried to bring it down on a roof, and he was very sure that now he had no margin for error left him, not with Hobart breathing impatiently beside him, his hands moving as if, as a pilot of a spacer, he could well take over the controls here. Raff circled twice, eyeing the surface of the roof in search of any break which could mean a crack-up on landing. And then, though he refused to be hurried by the urgency of the men with him, he came in, cutting speed, bringing them down with only a slight jar. Hobart twisted around to face Soriki. Still getting it? The other, cupping his earphones to his head with his hands, nodded. Give me a minute or two, he told them, and I'll have a fix. They're excited about something, the way this jibber-jabber is coming through. About us, Ralph thought. The ruined tower topped them to the south, and to the east and west there were buildings as high as the one they were perched on, but the town he had seen as he maneuvered for a landing had held no signs of life. Around them were only signs of decay. Lablet got out of the flitter and walked to the edge of the roof, leaning against the parapet to focus his vision-glasses on what lay below. After a moment, Raff followed his example. Silence and desolation, windows like the eye-pits in bone-picked skulls. There were even some small patches of vegetation rooted and growing in pockets erosion had carved in the walls. To the pilot's uninformed eyes, the city looked wholly dead. "'Got it!' Sariki's exultant cry brought them back to the flitter. As if his body was the indicator, he had pivoted until his outstretched hand pointed southwest. "'About a quarter of a mile that way!' They shielded their eyes against the westering sun. A block of solid masonry loomed high in the sky, dwarfing not only the building they were standing on, but all the towers around it. Its imposing lines made clear its one-time importance. "'Palace,' mused Lablet. "'Or capital. I'd say it was just about the heart of the city.' He dropped his glasses to swing on their cord, his eyes glistening as he spoke directly to Raff. "'Can you set us down on that?' The pilot measured the curving roof of the structure. A crazy fool might try to make a landing there but he was no crazy fool. Not on that roof, he spoke with decision. To his relief, the captain confirmed his verdict with a slow nod. Better find out more first. Hobart could be cautious when he wanted to. Are they still broadcasting, Soriki? The comtech had stripped the earphones from his head and was rubbing one ear. Are they? he exploded. I'd think you could hear them clear over there, sir. And they could. 
The gabble-gabble which bore no resemblance to any language Terra knew boiled out of the phones. "'Someone's excited,' Lablet commented in his usual mild tone. "'Maybe they've discovered us.' Hobart's hand went to the weapon at his belt. "'We must make peaceful contact, if we can.' Lablet took off his helmet and ran his fingers through the scrappy, ginger and gray fringe receding from his forehead. "'Yes, contact will be necessary,' he said thoughtfully. Well, he was supposed to be their expert on that. Raff watched the older man with something akin to amusement. The pilot had a suspicion that none of the other three, Lablet included, was in any great hurry to push through contact with unknown aliens. It was a case of dancing along on shore before having to plunge into the chill of autumn sea-waves. Terrans had explored their own solar system, and they had speculated learnedly for generations on the problem of intelligent alien life. There had been all kinds of reports by experts and would-be experts, but the stark fact remained that heretofore mankind as born on the third planet of Sol had not encountered intelligent alien life. And just how far did speculations, reports, and arguments go when one was faced with the problem to be solved practically and speedily? Raff's own solution would have been to proceed with caution, and yet more caution. Under his technical training he had far more imagination than any of his officers had ever realized, and now he was certain that the best course of action was swift retreat until they knew more about what was to be faced. But in the end the decision was taken out of their hands. A muffled exclamation from Lablet brought them all around to see that distant curving roof crack wide open. From the shadows within, a flyer spiraled up into the late afternoon sky. Raff reached the flitter in two leaps. Without orders he had the spray gun ready for action, on point and aimed at the bobbing machine heading toward them. From the earphones Sariki had left on the seat, the gabble had risen to a screech, and one part of Raff's brain noted that the sounds were repetitious. Was an order to surrender being broadcast? His thumb was firm on the firing button of the gun, and he was about to send a warning burst to the right of the alien when an order from Hobart stopped him cold. "'Take it easy, Kirby.' Sariki said something about a gun-happy flitter pilot, but, Raff noted with bleak eyes, the Comtech kept his own hand close to his belt arm. Only Lablet stood watching the oncoming alien ship with placidity. But then, as Raff had learned through the long voyage of the spacer, a period of time which had left few character traits of any of the crew hidden from their fellows, the xenobiologist was a fatalist and strictly averse to personal combat. The pilot did not leave his seat at the gun, but within seconds he knew that they had lost the initial advantage. As the tongue-shaped stranger thrust at them and then swept on to glide above their heads so that the weird shadow of the ship licked them from light to dark and then to light again, Raff was certain that his superiors had made the wrong decision. They should have left the city as soon as they picked up those signals, if they could have gone then. He studied the other flyer. Its lines suggested speed as well as mobility, and he began to doubt if they could have escaped with that craft trailing them. Well, what would they do now? The alien flyer could not land here, not without coming down flat upon the flitter. 
Maybe it would cruise overhead as a warning threat, until the city-dwellers were able to reach the Terrans in some other manner. Tense, the four spacemen stood watching the graceful movements of the flyer. There were no visible portholes or openings anywhere along its ovoid sides. It might be a robot-controlled ship. It might be anything, Raf thought, even a bomb of sorts. If it was being flown by some human, or non-human, flyer, he was a master pilot. I don't understand. Sariki moved impatiently. They're just shuttling around up there. What do we do now? Lablet turned his head. He was smiling faintly. We wait, he told the Comtech. I should imagine it takes time to climb twenty flights of stairs, if they have stairs. Sariki's attention fell from the flyer hovering over their heads to the surface of the roof. Raff had already looked that over without seeing any opening, but he did not doubt the truth of Lablet's surmise. Sooner or later the aliens were going to reappear, and it did not greatly matter to the marooned Terrans whether they would drop from the sky or rise from below. End of chapter.